Please join me in 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy 5, we'll be looking at verses 17 through 25 this morning. If you're using the blue ESV Bible in the seatbacks in front of you, you can find our text on page 993. And the title of our sermon is In Consideration of Elders. And the key words for our worshipers in training are honor, sins, and judgment. In John chapter 10, Jesus tells us that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd stays and confronts the wolf who is coming for the sheep. The good shepherd is willing to die for the sheep. This is, of course, in contrast, Jesus says, to the many who came before him, those whom he calls hired hands. The hired hand, according to Jesus, sees the wolf coming, sees the danger, and flees. He leaves the sheep behind, and the wolf snatches them up devouring some and scattering the rest. Jesus says the hired hand, as such, as a hired hand, cares nothing for the sheep since they are not his but someone else's. And he is simply not willing to risk personal injury for them. In that passage in John 10, he also contrasts himself with the thief who comes Purely to kill and destroy. Now in, in John 10, he very likely has Ezekiel 34 in mind. The passage that we read earlier um, and, and last week. Um, where the pre-incarnate Christ rebukes the, the corrupt shepherds of Israel. In the verses that we read last week, in the first part of the chapter, he says, Ah, shepherds of Israel! who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat. You clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, and the strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. We should note that the Bible uses the word, we've said this before, we'll say it again, the words pastor, elder, overseer, and shepherd fairly interchangeably. There might be, there's some slight nuances of difference between them, but overall those words are used synonymously in Scripture. And so when we consider Paul's words today regarding the church's expectations of and regard for elders in the church, whom Jesus calls, you know, his under-shepherds, Jesus' words in John 10 and his words in Ezekiel 34 should ring in our ears. And we should ask ourselves probably many questions, but at least these questions here. Who are the shepherds that emulate the good shepherd? Those who are willing to lay down their lives for the sheep. 
Who are the ones who are merely hired hands, who will flee when the wolf comes? And who are the ones, even worse, who are thieves and murderers, and they extract the very life out of the sheep for their own advantage? Sadly, churches all over the world have all of these types of men in their pulpits and on their elder boards. And so it is our responsibility, our duty to make sure that we continue to have shepherds and not hired hands or thieves. As we think about the broader context of this passage in 1 Timothy 5, we need to remember that Paul had, had spent the first three chapters outlining certain foundational theological needs for the church. Needs like sound doctrine, properly ordered worship, and godly leadership. And so he's returning to this theme of godly leadership here in verses 17 through 25. He's, he's shifted in this section in chapters 4 through 6 to, to make applications. And so he's In some ways, this is a direct application of what he had said earlier in chapter 3 about the types of men that should be considered uh, qualified for, uh, in particular, eldership within a church. Now, in chapter 4, remember, he had had gone over the necessary commitments that Timothy, uh, in particular, must make as sort of, in some ways, an example, um, prototypical uh, pastor of sorts. What are the commitments that he must make to be faithful and successful in his ministry? And then in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, all the way through chapter 6, verse 2, he discusses proper care for three specific groups within the church. Um, and in particular, it seems that these groups had become gravely misunderstood by the church in Ephesus. And so we saw several weeks ago in the first 16 verses of chapter 5, Paul's instruction regarding widows in the church. Today we will see uh, his uh, instructions regarding elders in the church, and God willing, next week we will consider instructions for uh, the relationship between uh, bond servants and their masters within the church. And all of it should be understood within the context of the first two verses of chapter 5 where he reminds us that the church is made up Uh, in familial terms. We are a family. So today we're looking at verses 17 through 25 regarding elders. Let me read those verses now. He says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, And the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. 
The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So as you consider these verses today, I want you to notice three things with me. First, in verses 17 and 18, we will note the church's responsibility to honor godly elders. Second, in verses 19 through 21, we will see the church's responsibility to rebuke sinning elders. And third, in verses 22 through 25, we will examine the church's responsibility to call or commission elders with patience and prudence. So honor elders, rebuke elders, and call or commission elders are our three main headings. And let's get started with the first one. Look with me in the first place then in verses 17 and 18 where Paul calls upon the church to honor her elders, he says, who rule well. To understand what Paul is saying here, we need to answer two fundamental questions. First, what constitutes ruling well? And second, what is this double honor of which he speaks, of which these ruling elders, these well-ruling elders should be considered worthy? So first, who, who are the elders who rule well? Well, in addition to the text I cited earlier, Ezekiel 34 and John 10, I'd like to mention uh, three other passages of Scripture that I think will help clarify our understanding of this point. So I'm just going to read the three texts. I want to offer a summary statement of those three texts and then explain how, how I got there. Text 1. Peter writes in his first epistle, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, he says, So I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Text 2. There's a conversation that takes place between Jesus and his apostles in Mark chapter 10 that is particularly germane to this question. In 10.35, Mark writes about a time when James and John asked Jesus if he would grant each of them in the day of his power, to sit one at his right hand and one at his left. Now, of course, the others overheard this conversation and it didn't sit well with them. Mark writes that they became indignant with the two. And this was Jesus' response. He says to all of his disciples at this point in the middle of their conflict, he says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles Lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. 
And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. He then grounds this call to his apostles, prototypical elders in a sense. He grounds this call to them in verse 45. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Lastly, text 3, the author to the Hebrews in verse uh, 17 of chapter 13 writes, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So bringing, bringing these, these texts together, these five texts, the three I just read, and the two I reference from, remember John 10, Ezekiel 34. And again, all, these are five illustrative, not exhaustive texts uh, that we could consider when it comes to what does it mean for an elder to rule well. But if we bring these together, I think it, we hit on most uh, of, of the themes that, that need to be considered for this. So this is a, a one kind of long sentence summary of that. I'll, I'll read it twice uh, if you're taking notes. Um, it's not particularly easy to remember, I don't think. I tried, but um, here goes. Elders who rule well are joyful servants who exercise real authority for the advantage of those whom they serve. Right? For the advantage of others, not themselves through gentle persuasion and not coercive compulsion, since they too are men under authority. Right? Elders who rule well are joyful servants who exercise real authority for the advantage of others and not themselves, through gentle persuasion, not coercive compulsion, since they too are men under authority. So let me show you how I got there. First, we learn from these texts that elders who rule well use their authority for the good and for the flourishing of those whom they lead. They don't use their authority for their own good and their own upbuilding. This is without question Jesus' point in Mark 10. Right? He says those who, leads, who lead God's people are not to use their authority to benefit themselves as the pagan Gentiles were doing. They use their authority to benefit those in their care. Jesus calls upon his leaders to serve those in their charge rather than lording authority over them, right? It's authority under, not authority over. And like we see in John 10, Jesus says this requires a willingness to sacrifice. A second trait. Elders who rule well use their authority in a gentle way to persuade others rather than in a harsh way to coerce others. We see this in Peter's words. right? He said elders are not to be domineering but are to be examples to the flock. Right? 
Don't lord your authority over them. Don't domineer. Be heavy-handed. Set an example. A third trait of the well-ruling elder must be a joyful willingness. So not only must the elder be others-focused rather than self-focused, he must be gentle, not heavy-handed. Here in the third place, he must be joyful and eager for the work. In Hebrews, we saw that he is to lead with joy. Peter says he should lead eagerly, not under compulsion, not because he's forced to do so, but because he wants to do so. So others focused, gentle, joyful. And a fourth trait regards his submission to the chief shepherd. In both Hebrews and in 1 Peter, we see that the elders shall give an account for how they rule. The author to the Hebrews calls upon the congregations to submit to their leaders. So it is a real authority that elders have, but it is first and foremost a delegated authority that leaders in the church will, without a doubt, give an account for how they exercise that authority. We see this uh, in Ezekiel 34, right? God there rebukes the shepherds who abused their authority and took advantage of the sheep who were under their care. And so bringing it all together once more, if you didn't get it the first two times, here's a third and final time, Elders are joyful servants who exercise real authority for the advantage of others and not themselves through gentle persuasion, not coercive compulsion, since they too are men under authority. There is, of course, more that could be said, but I think this gives us a good picture of what Paul means and what he is intending here when he says the elders who rule well. Well, what does it then mean for these well-ruling elders to be considered worthy of double honor? Admittedly, there are a variety of interpretations, but it is likely that he's referencing both a sense of respect and remuneration. Now, I I think respect is clear enough when, when we come to the word honor. When we see the word honor, we get it. Yeah, respect. But Paul also clearly seems to have in mind here some type of financial support. Given his quotations of Deuteronomy 25 and Luke 10. So it's Deuteronomy 25, 4, right? You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. In Luke 10, 7, the laborer deserves his wages. Given these two quotations, Paul is considering the idea of some type of financial compensation. The point of the Deuteronomy passage is that the ox, while working and treading out the grain, should be free to eat as he works and not go hungry. The farmer shouldn't muzzle the ox to prevent it from reaping some reward in its work. Combining this with Luke 10, uh, we see this further, right? Because Luke 10 is where Jesus said that the apostles should be free to eat the, the food and drink the wine in the houses where they were staying when he sent them out on their various missions. So Paul brings these together to make the point that elders who rule well 
especially those, he says, given to full-time gospel ministry, should be compensated for their labors. It would be of no advantage to a congregation to have all of her elders needing to work full-time jobs outside of their church responsibilities in order to provide for their families. Or for all of their elders to uh, be in dire straits financially because uh, having to balance both an outside job and in this. Sadly, this is true of many, possibly most churches in our country. It's a rare thing to have a church committed to providing for her pastors so that they are not burdened with financial concerns. So just allow me for a moment uh, to give God thanks and praise for, for all of you and for how we have grown as a church in this area. Right? It's not been lost on me the importance all of you have seen in making sure that my family is provided for through my labors for you in the gospel. So I'm thankful for that. And lastly on this point, while, while we might not compensate our bivocational elders with a salary, it's important that we make every effort to honor them and to consider how perhaps there are some forms of, of compensation for the work that we do that we might think of. So if I might speak on their behalf for a minute, thank you for the ways that you do appreciate them and you do honor them. But also, may you ever increase in your willingness and joy to double honor these faithful men. Okay, so uh, that's honoring elders. That's the awkward part of the sermon. How about rebuking them? This, remember, we saw in verses 19 through 21. We see this in the second place. Paul addresses the church's responsibility for properly rebuking elders who, he says, persist in sin. There are three uh, basic principles that we, we find in these verses here. First, elders, while elders are not above correction... Elders should enjoy a level of trust that is not easily broken at the whim of one disgruntled person. Right? The, the reality is that while elders must lead the sheep in gentleness, they must also fight wolves in ferocity. Therefore, it's important that the church not accept, Paul says, not accept a charge against an elder that cannot be verified with evidence, as he says, two or three witnesses, uh, referencing Deuteronomy 17. But what if, what if an elder sins against an individual in private? What if there aren't any so-called witnesses? Is this person, is this sheep without recourse? Oh, of course not. Of course, there are ways that private sins can be made known and established as fact. But Paul's point here is that those steps are important to take in order to admit a charge against an elder. Because what this does is it prevents those acting in bad faith from being able to take down 
without a shred of evidence, elders who would oppose their predatory purposes. So, that's one. Trust is granted to elders, but trust can also be broken. When witnesses agree, such as other people, journal entries, marks on the body, things like that, that doesn't necessarily mean just that another person had to be there, right? If these witnesses agree and an elder is found to persist in sin, or if it's heinous enough to be in it at all, Paul says he is to be rebuked in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Right? This is the second principle here. To rebuke those elders who persist in sin. Yes, elders, we should enjoy a level of, of trust from our people. That's not easily broken. But when it is legitimately broken, swift and public action should be taken to guard against further future infractions of others. So, if you find me or find one of our elders here to be in sin, you have every right and reason to address it. Now, I'm not blind to the difficulty that may exist for many to tell an elder his fault. But I pray that God would help us, help us elders, to be increasingly humbled before you so that while we long for your respect, we do not want at all for anyone, any one of you, to think that we are unapproachable. So trust is granted, but it can be broken. A third principle to be found here regards impartiality. Paul charges Timothy and the church at Ephesus reading this letter over his shoulder, as it were. He says, Keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. Right? Elders must, must not be subjected to an unfair rebuke, but neither should they be spared a fair one. Partiality is a wickedness that sadly pervades individuals, families, churches, and governments the world over. We are sinners. And we often are tempted to treat other people with prejudice in order to get what we want, regardless of what God wants. So Paul condemns such behavior and reminds churches that these duties are to be carried out before God, Christ Jesus, and the elect angels. The host of heaven. So the word to us, Redeemer Baptist Church, is this. All of heaven is watching. Congregations that throw good elders under the bus do so before the eyes of the chief shepherd. And elders who use their power and authority to coerce and harm others under their charge do so before the eyes of the all-seeing God, the captain of His army, and the host of heaven. So let us beware and live wisely before the face of God. 
That brings us to our third and final point this morning, which concerns Paul's instructions for calling and commissioning elders. You see, this is in verses 22 through 25. Now, the primary point of these verses here is that churches should exercise discretion and patience in the calling and appointing of men to positions of leadership. He says in verse 22, don't be hasty in laying your hands on someone. He also warns against taking part in the sins of others, and he commends purity. In verses 24 and 25, he wisely notes that not everyone wears their sins on their sleeves. Not everyone is going to be upfront and honest about their besetting sins, their secret inclinations, and their biggest problems. Now he says, some people, their sins are obvious. Some people, their sins precede them. Right? It doesn't take long to capture the essence of this man. Others, though, he says it takes longer. But the point is this. The result, in the end, is the same. They will face judgment. And so the church should be cautious and careful in calling or commissioning an elder. Because just because someone's sins don't precede him doesn't mean that there's not a train behind him. But then he also says that those who are committed to good works, that will also be be obvious. It will be clear. It will become clear. So this is why we have the process that we do here at RBC for ordaining elders and deacons to ministry. This is why there are various uh, places of service even in our church that you have to be a member here for at least six months before you can do. Right, I'm not going to read from our policy manual here, but I want to make a couple points from it regarding uh, eldership in particular, but it also applies to the diaconate. Right? So if a man aspires to church office here at RBC, first he must speak with the elders who will examine him and his fitness uh, for office and his personal calling. Now, these conversations usually take place over several months. They include much prayer and discussion as the man's character and giftedness are, are examined. And once the elders agree that he is indeed being called by the Lord to, uh, to shepherd here, they will, uh, pr- we will present the man to the congregation at one of our church life gatherings, which we have about four of those a year. So at one of these, we would present the man in the congregation, then you would have at least 90 days to ask questions of the candidate, ask questions of us. Right? And it's only once this period of examination has been satisfactorily completed that we would then lay hands on the man and ordain him to the office. And for a man who aspires to full-time gospel ministry, uh, he will undergo in, uh, a, a broader, fuller ordination council consisting of elders and pastors from other like-minded churches. If I remember correctly, mine lasted uh, over three hours. And I was questioned by eight different pastors regarding personal holiness, my commitment to lead, love, and serve my family, my understanding of and application of Scripture, my desire and abilities to shepherd God's people. It was, it was good times. 
But I hope it makes the point well that we take it seriously here at Redeemer Baptist Church not to be hasty in laying on of hands. We were really not hasty for me. I think I spent 10 active years in conscious preparation for ministry before I was ordained as an elder here. Now, that might say more about me and the, the, the work that the Lord was like, no, I, I got some more work to do on you, bud. But I'm grateful for it. All right, if I could go back in time and speed things up, I wouldn't. I was anxious and frustrated at 23 when things weren't moving along faster than I thought that they should. But I'm exceedingly grateful for my fellow elders now who at the time just kept saying, hold on. Hold on. Pump your brakes. And now, nine years after that difficult and impatient spring of 2013, 13 years after I set off for Bible school in 2009, last Sunday, you made a choice, Redeemer Baptist Church. Knowing my sins and proclivities well, to reaffirm God's calling upon me to serve this church, this time in the capacity of a lead pastor, to say that I am astonished that God would grant me this blessing and responsibility is the understatement of the year. So I praise God for His grace and for your patience. And I am trusting that our good works together in increasing measure, as Paul longs for here, will be inconcealable. Now before we close, I know you're all wondering, what is up with verse 23? I thought about just skipping it, but... We should make a comment. Why does Paul interject such a seemingly random thought about Timothy's upset tummy in the middle of this section on elders? Well, the thing to note about this sentence is how it highlights the personal nature of this letter. Ministry for Paul was to fellow humans, fellow image bearers of God. He wasn't writing to androids. He's writing to flesh and blood humans whom he loves. And he loved Timothy. It seems that in writing about the hasty nature in which some had laid hands on others, and about the need for Timothy not to take part in the sins of others, to keep himself pure, which Timothy, it seems, would have understood and agreed, Paul remembered a particular conclusion that Timothy had drawn about his own personal life, and he wants to address it. Remember in chapter uh, 4, the first part of chapter 4, we saw that the false teachers Timothy was combating at Ephesus forbade marriage, and they required abstinence from certain foods. Might that have included abstinence from wine? Almost certainly. 
Therefore, to keep Timothy from thinking that purity meant that he needed to refrain from ever drinking wine, despite its, its understood medicinal and practical use for him in his own life, Paul makes this parenthetical assertion that Timothy should, in fact, feel free to mix a little wine with his water for the sake of his stomach. Paul loves Timothy and didn't want him to continue suffering from a wrong-headed thought about purity that stemmed, it seems, from the false teaching of those that were seeking to harm the church there at Ephesus. So what's our takeaway from that? Simple. God's Word and not the opinions of man must determine for us what holiness and purity look like. All right, before we go to the table, I want to close with one final application. As, as you look to your imperfect under-shepherds here at Redeemer Baptist Church, the four of us pray that our ministry to you, for you, would not direct your gaze to us, but to the one who, according to Ezekiel 34, was to be the chief shepherd. The one that the the shepherds in Israel's day were to represent. The ones we, or the one that Paul was to represent, that Timothy was to represent, that we're to represent, Jesus Christ, the one who, according to Psalm 48, will shepherd you through death. So, the question, are you following the Good Shepherd? Put another way, have you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and let go of your claim on this world? If not, I pray that you would. I pray that you would entrust yourself to the Good Shepherd who died so that lost, rebellious sheep like like us might be brought back into the fold. Now, if you've ever been wounded by an abusive pastor or church, please, with all the, the love and sorrow in my heart, hear this. I am sorry. It was wrong, and God hates it. I pray that you would also hear this. Healing and restoration are possible for you. And I commend you for being here this morning. And I pray it would be an important step in healing for you. And I pray that we would all look up with the eyes of faith, And behold, the good shepherd who leads his sheep beside still waters and makes them to lie down in green pastures. The one who will guide his people through the valley of the shadow of death. The one whose rod and staff are a comfort to his people and a terror to those who would harm them as he fends off the wolves. That we would look to the one who has prepared a table for us. That in just a moment we will look forward to and anticipate in the table here. I pray that we would look to the One who has anointed our heads with oil, who has purchased for His people the right to dwell in the house of God forever. This is yours. 
in Jesus Christ if you will but have him. Will you? I pray that you would.